Welcome to the Nonprofit Exchange, stories by leaders for leaders to help you to raise the bar on your own performance and to release the potential inside of you. Now, here's today's episode. Hello, everyone. We're back for another episode of the Nonprofit Exchange. This is Hugh Ballou founder and president of Center Vision Leadership Foundation, where leaders create synergy through their common vision. We've had guests for um, almost 300 episodes now, and each one of them has a little piece of data that fits into the bigger realm, but each piece is important. And today's piece is very, very important. In many times, in 33 years of working with boards and nonprofit teams, there's always conversations about the team why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they doing that? So let's come back to that piece and see how we get us up to speed. So Heather, all right, you are our guest today and tell us about who you are and why are you doing this work that you're doing? Sure, thanks you. Thanks you. Thanks for having me. So um, my name is Heather Burright, as Hugh said. Um, I have about 15 years of experience, probably a little over, I kind of lose count, um, <laughs> in the learning and development space. So always kind of thinking about the adults in our, in our workspace, right? Our staff, our volunteers, our customers in some cases, what is it that they need in order to do their work well? So that's kind of where my focus has always been and what I've done throughout my career. I last worked at a national nonprofit where I identified the competencies or skills that people needed to be successful throughout their career. And I helped HR leaders across the country hire, onboard, and develop their staff with those particular competencies in mind. So really being thoughtful and strategic about what skills were needed within that particular organization. Um, I also created formal and informal staff development opportunities, including virtual training, which I talk a lot about and I'm sure we'll hear a lot about today as well. I like to say I was doing virtual training before Zoom was cool, right? <laughs> we all use Zoom now and Hugh was just talking about how great it has been over the past two years to be able to jump on Zoom and talk to people in different time zones and connect with people. But that uh, wasn't always the case, right? We didn't always use Zoom quite as much as we do today. I started my own um, consulting business focused primarily on learning and development and specializing in the virtual classroom a couple of years ago. And I think it's really important. And one of the reasons that I do this work is because so many organizations are being faced with new challenges right now because staff abruptly went remote in 2020 in most cases. Um, maybe they're still remote, maybe they're in a hybrid uh, situation but the workforce looks different and the things that people need are different. And it makes it even more difficult to get good training in the hands of your people, but it's still just as important as it's ever been because good staff training, investing in your staff, volunteers, investing in your people, it affects performance. It affects staff satisfaction, it affects retention. We talk about the great resignation, <laughs> it affects retention and really your organization's ability to innovate and continue to meet customer needs, whatever you call your customer and your kind of nonprofit or um, church space. So I love this work. I've been doing it for a while and I'm excited to share a little bit more today about virtual training and developing our staff. Well, thank you. We, um, we have some myths that we tell ourselves. And, and, and I know it's rampant in the corporate world, and I'm sure it's it's prevalent in the uh, 
I like to call us, we're in the business. We're in the not we're in the business of church or nonprofit. It's a for-purpose tax-exempt business. And it really is harder than a for-profit business. And we got a lot more rules. And it's more important work in many aspects because we're impacting human lives. But let's go back. We've learned some things wrong. We've inherited systems that weren't functioning. We were we were really wasteful. And so we hit the skids early 2020. And um, things change. We don't go out normally. We don't meet normally. So we've the uh, the curse of Zoom is a blessing of Zoom. So you know it was novel. Hey, we're going to Zoom. Hey, that's fine. Well, it's it's commonplace. I think your job is to help it not be commonplace. We took a lot of things for granted, and we had myths. Let's let's address some of the misconceptions. Our teams are virtual, and many times they're in different time zones, and many continents, but we're doing the synergy of work. So that one of the myths that I hear from corporate America, and I'm sure it's trickled into the nonprofit world is, well, if people are working virtually, we can't control what they do. Well, the Gallup polls for years have said 70% of the workforce is either disengaged or actively disengaged before the pandemic. So you weren't monitoring what they were doing anyway. So how do we focus on productivity rather than hours, the time clock punched? Yeah, that's a great question. And honestly, a lot of it is a mindset shift. Um, they've actually done some studies and I can get you the data afterwards, Hugh, because I, I have it somewhere saved on my computer, but they've actually done some studies and people who work remotely um, tend to be more productive than people in the office. They, I think the studies say that they tend to take more breaks, but when they're actively working, there are fewer like mouse clicks away from what they're working on. And so they tend to be more productive, getting more done within that same amount of time. There's also fewer interruptions. If you think about being in an office space, you never know who's gonna walk by your door or your cubicle and stop by and interrupt. Uh, you never know how long it's gonna take you from, to get from one meeting to another meeting if you're moving from conference room to conference room. So there's actually fewer interruptions at home as well. So I think it's, it's mostly mindset and how we think about the remote workforce or even the hybrid workforce moving forward. So really, some of the same principles apply. What are, what are the outcomes we want and how do we drive for that, that outcome? We tend to get bogged down in activity and not results, don't we? Yeah, absolutely. But I think sometimes that's because we haven't fully defined what the outcome is. And if we are looking at outcomes versus activity, then we can see that people can, can still be productive in a, in a remote environment. So part of training um, is, is helping people learn to focus so that our, our, our company name is Center Vision. It's the synergy of a common vision. We're going here. And so as in music, we have a piece of music. Everybody plays from that. But the conductor helps us stay together. So that's my analogy for the workplace. How do we function together? But we sometimes don't have that roadmap like the sheet of music. Now, what are some of the misconceptions about that area? Yeah, you know, I actually, I hear a lot of times because I focus in on the staff development piece. I hear a lot of times uh, things like, well, we need training. We need training for that. And I always, in a very polite, tactful way, <laughs> question why we need training. Why is it that training is the solution? Sometimes training is the right answer, but sometimes as you're alluding to, there's, there's not a clear strategy in place or there is a clear strategy, but it's not been clearly communicated. And so trying to really kind of unravel some of that, peel back the layers of some of that to see what is the real need 
Is it a training issue? Is it a communication issue? Is it a strategy issue? And then you can start to put the right solution in place. So things have changed. So um, what have we learned in the change? And the shift to virtual? Yeah, and since 2020 started, it's been radical. Yeah, it has been, right? I mean, I think we all just need a minute, maybe not a full minute, but a minute to just think about everything that we've been through in the past two years, everything that our staff and our volunteers have been through in the past two years. It's a lot. It's a lot for anybody to take in. And the home life and the work life, all of that has kind of blended into one. And so taking taking a moment, taking a pause to just reflect on that and show each other some grace in our workspace um, can be an incredible first step. But as far as what we've learned about virtual training specifically in the last um, couple of years, the first thing I would say is that training needs didn't go away just because our workforce went virtual. So I believe that people excel when they know what is expected of them and when they can show up authentically at work. But both of those ideas, both of those beliefs were challenging for staff in 2020. No one knew what to expect. And suddenly we were seeing people in a completely different light in their homes, with children doing remote school beside them, with all of their pandemic puppies and pandemic babies interrupting their phone calls, right? We, we weren't used to that. That's not what we saw prior to the pandemic in many cases. Suddenly our processes were changing, our programs, our services were being adapted, and our staff had to adapt quickly to the new environment with everything else around them also changing. And so they still had training needs. So that's the first thing I would say that we learned. The training needs didn't just go away because our workforce went virtual. The second thing I would say that we learned is that it's not a one-for-one -one conversion. So a lot of organizations had staff training that existed in an in-person way prior to the pandemic. And if they did recognize that those training needs didn't go away, the idea was to just move everything online. We can just do this in a Zoom. And while you can probably hit some of your <laughs> objectives by just moving things to Zoom, it's not gonna be the most ideal. And so training needs to be designed for that virtual space. What worked in the in-person environment does not always translate to the virtual room. And one of the examples that I often give, if you are a really strong facilitator, you are likely really good at asking open-ended questions. And Hugh, you do this all the time in these interviews. You ask these big open-ended questions and then people just talk, probably to the point that you're like, please stop talking, <laughs> right? I need a minute. But that's what works when you're in an in-person environment. You can ask this big, great, open-ended question. You can be silent. You can look around the room. You can wait. And it's not awkward. People will wait with you. They'll think and they'll start to respond. And there's this kind of group peer pressure almost in an in-person environment. As soon as that silence starts, someone will speak up and then someone else will join them. And then suddenly you're having this really great conversation with an open question. But in a virtual environment on a Zoom call, if you ask an open-ended question, I don't know what it is. Maybe people feel like they can hide. Maybe there's not that same positive peer pressure in a virtual room, 
But if you ask an open-ended question, you're more likely to get crickets. You're more likely to have extended silence without people jumping in to kind of rescue <laughs> and answer that question. And it's silence lasts longer in the virtual room. I think 10 seconds in an in-person environment goes much quicker than 10 seconds of silence in a virtual space. So if you were to just go one for one from in-person to virtual, you might still ask those great open-ended questions, but you might have a room that isn't responding. They're not engaging. So a simple change is to ask a closed question first. So tell me, has anybody attended a conference in the last two years? People feel more confident in answering that yes or no question. They can speak up, they can use the chat box, you could use a polling feature. And then you know who in the room has attended a conference and who hasn't. And you can ask your open-ended question, what made that conference so special? What made you decide that one was worth going to? You know that you have seven people in the room who answered yes, they've been to a conference. There was something, some draw to that conference. Now they feel a little more excited, um, inclined <laughs> to engage and answer that question. So that's just one example of moving from in-person to virtual and how it's not necessarily a one-for-one. One. And I think that was a big learning within the last two years. And the last one that I'll say is related. Um, facilitators need to be prepared to train virtually. So that open-ended question example is one example. But just like the courses themselves, the training itself is different in a virtual room, so is facilitation. It requires different skills, different confidence, and comfort with the technology. And if those things don't exist, it's not going to be a seamless experience. That's a lot of good stuff. Wow. <laughs> so there's, there's, um, we made the shift, but we, let's talk about best practices and worst practices. What you just talked about, um, we teach in Center Vision that leadership is found, the foundation of leadership is relationship. And in 33 years of working with live organizations, it's never failed to come up, communications never fail to come up as the number one issue. Um, and so what's, I forget the person that said the biggest illusion <clears throat> about communication is that it actually happened. So what you addressed is engagement and, and you use facilitator rather than trainer, which is priceless. We're facilitating a conversation about learning. So all too often, I have been on the other end of somebody lecturing or having endless PowerPoint slides with too many words that they're reading. So why don't you just send the PowerPoint? Why do you need to be here? So there's no engagement. There's no conversation. So I think the paradigm you set up is just where we need to be. We facilitate active learning. So what you started here was what are some ways that we facilitate that relationship, that interactivity. And you just open up, let's act, ask them a closing question, then an open-ended question. And, and I like to say, well, I'd like to hear from George and then Sally. So somebody I know can respond to it and somebody might need a minute to think. And so kind of get the ball rolling. What's the, what are some other, uh, it's, using slides is a, is a double-edged, curse and a blessing. What are some other best practices or worst practices that we need to know? 
I, I talk a lot about creating that engagement in the virtual room. And I think part of that is that connection piece. Um, so when I think about creating engagement in the virtual room, it, it seems to be a top concern when I talk to people who are considering virtual training or um, have talked to people who have tried virtual training, engagement seems to be the thing that comes up most often. Uh, and I, I mean, why is that, right? Like, I think we've all kind of attended that boring webinar with the PowerPoint slides and the lecture, and, and we dread asking other people to do the same thing. We don't want to necessarily be the provider of <laughs> that boring yeah. webinar. And so, you know, we don't want to end up staring at a bunch of blank faces or empty video squares, um, or we don't wanna watch somebody doze off on video, right? So we want engagement, we want to create that connection. And so what I focus in on is three sort of, kind of a three-pronged approach, I would say. Whatever you're going to do, and especially in a virtual classroom, I think this is absolutely true for in-person, but if you think about virtual, people have a lot of opportunity to minimize their screen and go on about their business, right? So. I think it's even more important in the virtual room, make it relevant, make it meaningful and make it fun. So that's my three kind of three pronged approach. And what does that look like? What does that actually mean? I think when you think about creating something that's relevant, it's about creating training that can tie back directly to your organization's priorities and the audience's job. So to do that, we have to start by being clear about our organization's priorities, to your point earlier, Hugh. Maybe that's a strategic plan. Maybe it exists already. Maybe it's something you need to spend some time defining. But either way, we need to be clear about what it is that we're trying to achieve. And then once you know what your organization's priorities are, you can align all of your talent practices, not just uh, training, to those priorities. But the other piece of that, and this is getting towards um, what you're talking about, Hugh, is that we have relevant also means that we have to make training actionable. So, uh, you know, often I'll see organizations determine a need for training, and then the training becomes an information dump from the subject matter expert, right? That, that PowerPoint that you're talking about, right? But knowledge doesn't equal behavior change. Oh. I know that I should do laundry every day if I don't want it to pile up. But every week I question how many people live in my household <laughs> because the laundry pile is so high. I know I should do it, but doing it every day doesn't always happen. People know they should eat healthy. They know they should exercise, but that doesn't mean they always follow through. If you think about the number of New Year's resolutions that are broken, right? Knowledge doesn't equal behavior change. So if you want to create that engagement within a virtual space, making it relevant as part of that process we need to focus in on the action that we need staff to take. Do you need your staff to interact with whatever you call your client base differently? Do you need them to use a new software? Do you need them to tell the story of your organization to raise money? Whatever it is that you need them to do, give them a, an opportunity to practice taking that action in a safe environment. So it's not necessarily a, a tactic as far as like open a poll, right? Polls are great, but <laughs> giving them the chance to practice an action that is relevant to their job and relevant to where the organization is going, that's powerful. And that can still be done in a virtual space. So that's kind of the first piece of my three-part approach. I got to come up with a better way of talking about that three-part approach. I don't know. 
three-legged stool. I don't know what it is. I got to come up with a better um, story there. But the second part is to keep it meaningful. So part of making it meaningful is making it relevant, making sure that it's actionable, answering that what's in it for me question. But part of it is meeting those deeper human needs, like the need for connection and the need for reflection and the need for exploration. So we can invite staff into the conversation instead of just having the expert in front of the room with the PowerPoint slide, talking, sharing, we can invite staff or volunteers, those who are participating in the training into the conversation and allow them to share what their past experiences have been or their expertise has been and allow them to learn from each other in a meaningful way. And so to the point earlier where an open question doesn't work when it's asked first most of the time, you can use the tactics, the features of the room to allow for that conversation to happen. So whether you're asking yes or no questions, whether you're asking people to start in the chat box and then move into a verbal conversation, whether you're using, you know, polls or handouts or shared, I love collaboration, um, hands-on collaboration within a virtual space. So using like a shared slide deck or something where people can be in it real time working together, moving people in and out of breakout groups so that they have kind of the comfort of the smaller group setting. That's where you start to get really good conversation and people are able to share and learn from each other. And that's meaningful. Everybody likes, everybody brings something to the table when they show up to a virtual setting. They have experience, they have expertise, they, they have stories and things that they want to share and they want to be heard. And giving people an opportunity to do that is incredibly impactful. So make it meaningful is the second. And then the third, and maybe we'll get into some more tactics here. <laughs> I, know, I know that we also really like hands-on tactics that we can go implement right away. Um, everyone has a different meaning of the word fun. So I always hesitate to even use it. Know your audience. For some, solving a problem is fun. For others, collaborating is fun. For, <laughs> for others, working in a more casual environment is fun or games are fun. So know your audience and what they think of as fun. But no matter the definition, one thing we can always do is keep the training engaging and interactive. And this goes for our virtual meetings as well. There are a lot of boring virtual meetings that, uh, that could have been an email, right? So this applies for virtual meetings as well as virtual training. But think about the features that you have available to you. Think about that chat box. Think about using um, whiteboards or breakout groups or polls. Use um, outside tools. Um, like the virtual collaboration space that I mentioned, like going to a, a Google slide and hands-on together, or using a tool like Neural or Miro, where it's basically a virtual whiteboard with sticky notes that you can move around and draw and do all of the things that you would do with a, a whiteboard in a room. Um, you know, think about uh, tools like Kahoot is a way of, of kind of gamifying the, the space. Um, techniques like storytelling, analogies, improv. I love to do improv in a virtual space, which you probably wouldn't necessarily jump to for a virtual space, but it's great. If you have a question that you need answered or you want people to brainstorm a different way of doing things, do a yes and activity and allow them to just build on each other, on each other's ideas. You're going to get a lot more interaction from that than just a, a simple open-ended question. And then just get people hands-on whenever possible. You know, when people are engaged, they're gonna have more fun. The more, the more they engage, the more they will engage. <laughs> so the more we can, you know, 
intentionally bring them in to the environment, to the conversation, the more they'll continue to engage with us. Relevant, meaningful, fun. Yes, you got it. Those are the three. Lots of stuff underneath that. And uh, um, a lot of bad practices where people talk at the audience and not do what you say. Let's engage people. In, um, and I think I always like to start with my, my learning objectives. You know, this is what we're going to walk away having learned. And then I always come back to it. It's, it's an accountability piece for me. Did we do this? And so I'm kind of, I'm setting the bar. And if I have not heard from somebody, what's your trick for getting people to turn their cameras on when they don't want them on? Yeah, I have mixed feelings about it, to be honest. There are times when people are not able to turn their cameras on. Uh, I think, you know, I am guilty of this also, but we tend to think about people being in the same space that we're in. So right now I am home, there's no one here to interrupt me. I have a private space. Uh, maybe you would hear my puppy crying if he, if he hears me talking, but there's not a lot to interrupt us, but that's not everyone's home environment. And so I think we need to prompt people and ask people to share video if they're able, but I think we also have to show them some grace if they're not able, because that's just not gonna be the case every single time for every single person. What I have done is to kind of encourage that video sharing is if I'm using a PowerPoint, I'll say, turn off your camera, take your break when the PowerPoint is up because we don't need to be seeing each other's faces for this piece. We're gonna look at the slide, we're gonna look at the image, we're gonna look at the graph, whatever it is. But when we come back and we're engaged in conversation, whether in a large group or going into breakout groups, if at all possible, turn on your camera so that people can see and engage with you that way. Because it is an important element. It's just not always possible for people. Yeah, I know. I, I just, I'm thinking about multitasking and people are really not engaged. And so if they're being paid to be there, it's important to set a bar. So that's a, that, in, you know, I'm with you on the grace piece because there's, there's extenuating circumstances. And we're dealing in, um, unknown, we're in uncharted territories about personal stress and anxieties and, and a lot of things. So um, I think probably better to err on the size of grace than, than other, but it, it's a constant challenge because we want people, if we have something important, it's important that people grasp it and use it. So in planning for college class and teaching, I, I gave people reading assignments. And then the last course I said, okay, here's your reading assignment. I want you to extract three things that you want to highlight that are important. Tell me why they're important in your world and how you're going to utilize them. So actually the students took part of being a teacher. And so we learned from each other and they were really jazzed about that. And so I, I'm, I'm um, listening to you for myself as well as interviewing question. So there's, there's more than one way to do this. And I think the worst thing we can do is model it after we saw something somebody else do and, you know, repeat the same, the same mistake. So how do we measure success? How do you know you've been successful when you've done a training? That, there's actually a big debate on this in the, in the learning and development space too, because it can be hard to measure. But we want to make sure that if we're putting our time, our, if we're investing money, resources, people into it, that it's effective. So I think for me, the first thing is always start with 
whatever your organization's strategy is, what's driving it? Why are we even doing the training? Why does the training matter? What is it that, how is it gonna help your organization? How is it important to the people who are taking the training, right? So identifying at the start, what is the underlying strategy that is driving the training need? I think that's the first piece. Then if you're talking about um, assessing whether training is effective virtually at kind of a high level overall, um, then I think setting goals for the virtual training in general is important. If you're talking about one specific virtual training course, then the objectives are, are the place to start. Um, we do always wanna have objectives when we're creating the training. What is it? I, I tend to focus on the action. Um, again, making sure that it's relevant, meaningful, and fun. The action tends to be where I start. There may be a lot of things that people need to know at the end of the day to perform that action, but I wanna start with the action because that's where you're gonna see the most behavior change and the most impact in the organization. So most of my objectives are formulated around whatever action we need people to take after the training is over. That will help set us up for the evaluation. And I think it's incredibly important to do evaluation on training as well. Then you do have some data to look back on and say, yes, this worked, no, this didn't work, or it kind of worked, but we wanna to continue to adapt and learn from it and, and make it better every single time, right? And so those evaluations, you can evaluate um, satisfaction, which is kind of a baseline were people satisfied with the, with the event. Um, you're not gonna get a ton of actionable data from that, but I do think it's important to know that people are happy with what they're experiencing. The next is to think about knowledge gain. So um, did people learn something when they attended the training? From the time they, before they joined to the time they ended, did they learn something? Did they walk away with something? And then I do think that behavior change piece is often harder to measure but it's important. And if your training is designed to create that behavior change, having um, you know, site visits, if you're in a position where you can go and watch people um, doing their job or doing their volunteer work and seeing if they're implementing the changes, that's important. Getting supervisors involved or volunteer coordinators involved to see you know, how are they doing? Are the staff and volunteers changing the way they're behaving? Asking the people that they're serving if they're meeting the needs and the behavior has changed, right? So there are ways to get that input for behavior change. And I do think it's important because really it's the only way to know if you have been successful and um, you know the way to continue to improve, which in the learning and development space, we all have this like um, desire, right? For continuous improvement, it's why we're here. Well, um... I call it continuing improvement in my world. It's not a set program. It's what we do for ourselves. So um, I'm going to, we're going a little long today because it's such an important topic. If that's okay with you, I want to probe it a little deep, deeper here. So I've experimented in, in a college setting in my nonprofit community where we have engagements in um, corporate trainings. It's not really a training. It's, it's more of an engagement because the bottom line is productivity. We need to have more money left over in a business. We need to not spend too much money for overhead in a nonprofit because it needs to go to the cause. So we can measure our results financially. We tend to not do that in nonprofit space, which is a shame. We, we need to be more productive and more accurate with it and incorporate some of the better practices. But have you ever done a, a part A, part B? For instance, 
one of the leadership programs I do with the companies take all the top leaders and do a coaching, teach them how to coach because they don't know how to coach. They're telling people what to do. And they complain about people continuing to come to the door asking what to do. And they're, it's, you know, they're setting up a vicious cycle, which interferes with the, their productivity and those people they're coaching. So it, it, there's no win to that. So what I do is go through an interactive session where we all see a model, we practice a model, we talk about what we learned, we do it again, talk about what we learned. And then 30 days later, we come back and in front of everybody, what did you try? What did you learn? What didn't work? And what, what will you do differently? And that is massive. And I don't know if people wait till the day before to do it, but it, there's still an accountability point. So do you recommend models like that where there's knowledge? And we tend to dumb down to um, the IQ thing, which is only measuring memory and comprehension. And structure of intellect, Joy Guilford's research is there's multifacets of intellect, problem solving, creative thinking, and et cetera. So um, thinking about the multifaceted, how do we take the knowledge and then apply it? Is there a part A, part B it's you've tried and how does that work? Yeah, I've definitely taken that approach. If the kind of structure and resources allow for it, sometimes there are parameters within an organization where it, that wouldn't really work. But if it does allow for it, I think it's a great approach, especially if during that time in between part A and part B, you, they, you know that they're going to have an opportunity to implement because if they aren't going to have an opportunity, they're not necessarily going to do it. They're not going to learn as much from it. It's not going to be as effective. So if you know they're going to have an opportunity to implement between part A and part B, great approach. If you can provide any kind of technical assistance or coaching between part A and part B, that's also a really effective uh, thing you can do during that time period. And then come back to part B, share what they learned, get that feedback from each other. Um, from the from the facilitator, that kind of thing. It's a great approach to use, definitely. I think facilitating the interactive piece that people can continue the conversation to me would be one of the one of the success factors that they're talking about it at work and they're learning. I, I hate when we get in mandatory trainings and people roll in their eyes because they know better. That's why you're at the bottom of the organizational chart because you know better than anybody else. So Heather has a website. And when people go to, I'm going to, if, if you're watching on video, you can see it. If you're not, if you're listening to this on the podcast, then it's, um, it's called skillmastersplural.market.com, skillmastersmarket.com. Heather, when they go there, what will they find? Yeah, so this is the homepage of my website if you're looking at the video option. Uh, there are a couple of things about how we can get connected. If you'd like to get connected, uh, some different uh, services that I offer are listed there. You can learn a little bit more about me, maybe more than the uh, one minute snippet <laughs> that I did at the beginning. Um, I also have a, a blog where I share some, um, you know, kind of relevant information related to staff development and virtual training. And so take a look take a look around. There are lots of resources there. Um, I'm also sharing uh, almost daily on LinkedIn. So that's another great place. If you're just looking for resources and to get connected, that's another great place to go. I'm sharing things on a regular basis and engage with those who are you know, commenting and participating as well. That's people can learn a whole lot, but they learn about you and the value that you bring, which this is a key piece. I'm, it's so important. Thank you for doing this work. And it's important no matter where you're a leader, to and you know what continually i'm 75 i learned more today when i'm teaching than i ever have before 
I don't know why. Maybe there's more to learn. The more you learn, the more you realize you don't know. But it's it's valuable for us to to, to teach. What do you what do you think? Is that's a reverse way of learning for ourselves? It is. It's actually one of the higher levels of learning to be able to take a concept, kind of synthesize your way through it, and then repurpose it. Re what's the right word? I can't think of the word I'm going for there. But to then be able to take that and teach someone else. That's one of the highest levels of learning. And it's actually a, a technique that I've used within, within virtual training as well, where someone's having to take a concept, learn it, and then teach it to other people. You're clearly an expert in this topic. I'm, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm excited by this. I want to go create another program just because I can. So, so um, one last thing, I promise, last question. So I hear lots of excuses with people when I say, let's write down goals. Well, I don't have time to do that. Well, you got time to waste everybody's time and have to do it over again. Training. I don't have time for that. Well, wait a minute. It's, it's not spending time. It's investing time. So would you deal with the investment and why it's important? Yeah, I mean, your people are your most important asset within an organization. I, you couldn't do what you do without your staff or your volunteers. So in most cases, or it might be an organization that runs all automated, I don't know, but in, the most, in most cases, right, we can't do what we do without our people. And so not investing in them, you are running the risk of them not meeting expectations and not delivering on your strategies, your mission, your vision. Um, you're running the risk of them leaving and losing, you know, years of knowledge as they go. Um, and you're also running the risk of them staying and being really unhappy. <laughs> and that's almost worse <laughs> because you never know where that unhappiness is gonna go and how it's gonna impact the other people that are a part of your staff teams, your volunteer teams. You never know how it's gonna impact the people that you serve or the work that they're doing. And so, you know, I personally believe that organizations are better when they empower their people to operate from their strongest capabilities. And training is one way that you can you can do that. Wow, you heard it here, nonprofit exchange. So Heather Burright, thank you so much for your wisdom and sharing your thoughts and strategies and for this great interview on the nonprofit exchange. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to the nonprofit exchange. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.